Hello and welcome to Not My Monkeys. If you're here, it either means that you love circus and you can't wait to hear all the helpful hints and no-nonsense talk about the art form that you adore, or you have no idea about circus and you just want to get a head start seeing as your grandma's bought you those Cirque du Soleil tickets for Christmas. Either way, you're in the right place. We're here to hold up the edge of the big top canvas and let you wiggle inside. We'll be revealing things that you didn't even know about the absolutely bonkers and beautiful world of circus. Hello, welcome to episode four, Myths and Misconceptions. Thanks for coming back if you've listened to us before, and thanks for joining us if this is your first dip into the monkey podcast pool. <laughs> I'm Rosie, and with me today is Ruby. Hello. And every day, it's always you and me. <laughs> it's always just us, unfortunately. It's just us two. Yeah. So first, we've got some news. Ooh, I love news. <laughs> We have finally got ourselves on Twitter. Um, wow. So you can give us a follow at NotMyMonkeysPod. That's at NotMyMonkeysPod. Um, and please, please do follow us because we haven't figured out how to work it yet. And yeah, we, we don't know Twitter very we well. Need we need followers. someone to follow us so we can start doing things. You can reach out to us, answer our polls or quiz questions. You can share amusing stories or your circus experience with us. We love to hear that. And, you know, it's good to share. Yes, we do. And in other fun news, welcome and thank you very, very much to our brand new patrons. Hooray! You are all so great. We really appreciate you helping us make this podcast. So if you're listening and you think that you'd like to help by joining our patron, then you can head to patreon.com slash notmymonkeyspodcast. On with the show! So this episode is all about, you guessed it, myths and misconceptions in circus. So we're going to be looking at some of the tropes and common misunderstandings that people might have about the circus and hopefully we can settle some of them once and for all. Yeah, like do people really run away to join the circus? Mm. Did Nella the Elephant even exist? <gasps> and why do people always think that just because you work in circus that you will do their kid's birthday party? <laughs> all common myths plaguing our industry. <laughs> hard hard times we also asked you guys on social media what misconceptions you came up against um, and here's some of the things mm -hmm. that people said they said they get told that it's an easy job that it's a job that you will just do for free that you don't need to be paid for which is a super common one um, people think that everyone that does circus can do the splits or a backflip um, that it's a thing that only young people can do or maybe only white people can do um, and of course, that people think that you need to have this sort of specific body type to be a circus performer. And yeah, classically, no. that you just want to do kids' birthday parties and that's your dream. <laughs> like that that is your, your job. You're just like, yes, circus equals birthday parties. For six Not that there's anything wrong with birthday parties, but there is a or six much bigger <laughs> industry. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they are a little annoying I suppose but <laughs> it's such a big industry <laughs> it's like I don't have to focus in on just kids birthday parties yeah exactly let me be an artist <laughs> <laughs> you know we're in the circus industry you and me Ruby in, a, in many ways what are some misconceptions <laughs> of the job that we have come up against Ruby what have you experienced well I've definitely heard a few of those that people said um mm-hmm mm-hmm 
But yeah, also the other day, actually, I was with someone who found out that I did circus and they asked me what my specialization was. And I said, oh, I do trapeze. And they were like, oh, yeah, I was going to say because, you know, obviously you're not like a clown or anything and thought that that was (gasps) hilarious. (laughs) Um, Little did they know. (laughs) It's like, actually, yes, I do do clowning. Um, And obviously just because I'm a lot, actually, (laughs) just because I'm a young woman, you presumed that. Yeah, that just doesn't fit with your image of of a clown, um, which, yeah, mm. is a frustrating one. This idea that women are pretty and men are funny. And if anyone tries to stray from that, then that's confusing or just just not what people have in mind. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's pretty annoying. I guess you probably get that, that as well. That is most certainly a circus myth. Anyone can be funny and anyone can be pretty. Yes. Or even both. <laughs> or both. <laughs> yeah, you must get that as well, being another woman who does clowning. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've definitely been telling people about my work uh, in hospitals as a clown. And I think some people assume that I'm on like the organising or the administrative side of things. It's like, nah, I'm the that's one so wearing annoying. like the silly hat. I'm definitely doing like the clowny stuff. That's annoying. Anyone can do anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it is annoying. It's a bit annoying. Um, I'm trying to think of any others I can think of. Can we think of any more? Yes. <laughs> How about <laughs> realize that it's me? Think of it. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, let's do that bit again. Cool. <laughs> what else? Are there any other misconceptions that you've come Good up against save, working Ruby. in circus? <laughs> Well, you know, I think a lot of people have this myth in their head that it's um it's a gift this this talent to do circus things, you know, mm. on flying trapeze or juggling like crazy or doing all the cool acrobatics, you know. Yeah. Um but it's actually it's a craft, I think that circus like all art right. is a craft and you know, it takes practice, time and dedication and those are the things that people have that that do well in circus, you know, they they are what gets them through it it's not some sort of magic thing they were gifted with when they were born (laughs) you know and I think that uh, a lot of people see the circus and they do think that they think it's unattainable but actually yeah uh, yeah it just takes time and practice yeah you get people saying like oh I wish I I could never do that or you know Mm -hmm. and it's like Mm -hmm. well you know you you could and I didn't just get to do this overnight you know like yeah it took a lot Mm -hmm. of work Mm. um and yeah I think that comes from there's this sort of historical perception of circus as this mysterious Mm -hmm. magical mystical thing that's a secret society Mm -hmm. and that um yeah yeah this like talent that you're born with or something it's yeah romanticized they like to like yeah romanticize the idea of keeping it this unobtainable world of a different kind of person that operates in it and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and you I, know, whether it's benefited or damaged circus, it's it's there, isn't it? And we gotta we gotta try and align it with the modern world a bit more, I think. For sure, yeah. And I, I talked about that actually a little bit in the interview that we're gonna play you guys. Um Oh, did you do an interview? I did, yeah. Seamless. <laughs> nice segue. segue. <laughs> yeah, so I spoke to a circus historian and we talked about sort of some of the historical myths, um, misconceptions mm. and stuff. Um Yeah, which was really interesting. She's got loads of knowledge, so I'm looking forward to playing that. Awesome. Well, you know, I've listened to that interview a few times now, and I will say it is a very interesting interview because you cover not only the topics 
of myths in circus history, but also the opinions on that age-old question of trad versus contemporary. And then uh, you yeah. somehow managed to throw in some chat about gender roles, patents, narrative in circus, leotards, and the pandemic. So <laughs> I think it's a jam-packed interview, which mm-hmm. I hope our listeners are going to love. So for today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Kate Holmes, who's a historian, a researcher and an all-round circus nerd. (laughs) So thanks for chatting to me. Um, Could you just start by telling us a bit about how you became a doctor of circus? Um, Well, I started doing um, some classes, some evening classes at Circa Media back in probably 2005, I think. And um, I'd done a degree in uh, drama okay. which was very much kind of theory and practice going hand in hand so you know I sort of was really excited about about this new thing that I was doing and I kind of wanted to learn a bit more about it but when I started trying to look for some materials to read about it I couldn't really find much there was pretty much one book which is an incredible book um, by somebody called Peter Tate but there wasn't really much else mm-hmm. I so I kind of thought well I guess there was sort of changes going on in my life and so I thought well actually um, I want a change I'm going to go and do an MA I'm going to focus on aerial performance in every single module that I can on that MA <laughs> um, and um, I sort of came out with doing a history dissertation which I hadn't expected either but I was working with a really great supervisor who improved my writing a hell of a lot um, and that kind of led me down the history route. Great. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Just like that. So to start with a fun question. Yeah. What's your favourite historical circus fact? Ah, OK. So I have to admit, I'm, I kind of want to be a bit greedy. I want to get two. <laughs> OK, I think we can let you have two. <laughs> OK, so one is a topical one, which is that... Um, in 1918, there was the big influenza epidemic and it closed uh, circuses, certainly in America, early. And that kind of it put a couple of changes into uh, the circus in- industry there. So it actually forced Ringling Brothers, who also uh, owned Barnum and Bailey, to, um, to fuse these two units together. And that's actually, amongst other things, that's one of the reasons why Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey combined show and that then became like the world's largest circus. Maybe this pandemic will bring a massive circus. Well, I think what it, what it demonstrates is that the circus industry does kind of change and develop in response to world events. And, you know, we've got to hope that that's what happens with this particular set. Yeah, it's definitely an adaptable art form, isn't it? Completely, completely. Um, and my other one uh, was... It was because it's, you know, being aerial really being my thing. Yeah, Leotard, who we now call that piece item of of um, costume after, he um, his leotard isn't exactly what we would think of as uh, today's leotard, particularly because it was made out of wool. So, you know, wool time sweat. Ooh. <laughs> Tasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like ideal performance clothing (laughs) (laughs) but it was a really big innovation so you know alongside the flying trapeze but hey (laughs) we'll let him have that one (laughs) so um the episode that i'm interviewing you for is all about sort of myths and misconceptions in circus 
Would you say there are lots of those when it comes to the history of circus? Yeah, yeah, I would. Um, I think partly also that kind of circus has been its own worst enemy a little bit. When it first started out, well, who we credit as the first person to have created circus in 1768 is Philip Astley. Yeah. And he, um, you know, and there are issues about that, but he was very good at publicity. And in order to try and legitimise this new form of entertainment, he um, tied it to kind of like quite nostalgic ideas of ye olde England. Hmm. Um, And that has kind of led through that a lot of the time nostalgia is kind of part of circus history. So it means that sometimes there are distortions around it. Uh, okay. You, know, you get Astley as, the, as this man who was very good at publicity and made his entertainment very successful. But actually, there were two other people performing something similar in London in the same year, um, Walton and Hughes. Okay. And this idea as well that he was the one who created circus and he didn't even call it circus. His his space was an amphitheatre. It was Charles Hughes some years later who called it a circus. Right. But then there's also this whole idea that we have that actually circus, uh, traditional circus is access to to circus history in some way. And it's really not that simple because practices change a lot over time. And, you know, you get things like, I know we've sort of talk, talked about this in person, but things like narrative, mm. you know, the whole issue of narrative in circus. Yeah. Um, and we think it's, well, there's been this idea that new circus or contemporary circus, whatever you want to call it, um, that something new is narrative. But actually, Astley used narrative. Uh, he had, it was sort of myths and legends and war battles that were dramatised. Um, and then you've got things like in the mid-19th century, Byron's Mazeppa poem was adapted um, and became quite famous as well because there was a a woman, uh, Isaiah Menkins, who ended up cross-dressing in the Mazeppa role and, you know, interesting stuff about gender. Yeah. But then you've kind of got big specs as well, which could be Aladdin myths or, um, you know, the huge spec is spectacular and it's this, but it often does have some kind of narrative involved. And they were going on until the early 20th century. You know, and sometimes I think it was parts of, of shows, like small sections, but sometimes it was an entire show in its own right. Mm. I mean, that's all kind of got a bit forgotten. A bit lost. Yeah, it's funny. There is this thing in the circus world of sort of separating contemporary and traditional, but often those lines seem actually really blurry to me. And yeah, I, what would you say your opinion is on what the differentiating factors are between those two? If if that if you can do that, <laughs> <sighs> I kind of have real problems with it. To be honest, mm. um, I sort of part of me thinks that it's a lot a lot about audiences, maybe. So um, you know, because I I was, was thinking about it. You know, is it about a tent and a theatrical space? Mm. But then when you start doing that, you immediately think that that doesn't hold with something like Glastonbury and Giffords. Yeah. So, you know, Glastonbury, it's in a tent, it's contemporary. Giffords, well, even Giffords is a problem in some respects because Giffords often use a narrative to structure what is a a sequence of acts. Mm. And then a lot of the contemporary circus stuff, it's still a sequence of acts. It's just tied with some kind of theme or narrative. Yeah. So I just end up kind of going, is this about audiences? Because is what it 
is it's sort of about who's going to come and see the show mm. is it about the fact that maybe contemporary circus has an audience that often knows a little bit about it Mm. they're kind of they form their own little group and so they then get really interested in certain aspects like I don't know the performance of effort or something like that do you think then that becomes um an issue of class of a thing of like middle class is contemporary circus maybe more working class people go to see traditional circus and that then there's this snobbery of the middle class saying oh that's we've got the proper one <laughs> that sort of arty theatre snobbery that happens I think there is definitely a bit of of artist, arty popular, mm. you know, I, I think that's definitely true. I think I'm not sure it always maps 100% onto class. Yeah. But I think there's, there is definitely an element of that. Because, you know, I think that actually a lot of middle class families would go to see traditional circus if it happened to be in a space near them. But yeah, I, I kind of have, I as my, every time I try and pin it down, I find myself thinking that actually that division is really quite hard yeah um I mean there are some things that you see and you're kind of like you're pretty sure immediately that that's contemporary circus because Mm. it's probably more um theatrical it mixes probably more theater and circus acts it might be a one-person show so I'm thinking of something like Laura Murphy's Contra yeah you know that to me feels quite firmly contemporary Mm. but yeah but why (laughs) Oh, it's hard, isn't it? (laughs) But why? Yeah. One of the things contemporary circus likes to to say is new is this idea of innovative apparatus. Um, And I actually think there's something more interesting going on with contemporary circus because I think it's it's about a different relationship to apparatus than there was in the past. Yeah. And maybe a more extended playfulness um, or more thinking about the apparatus as more connected to movement rather than maybe a an impetus for movement mm. that thing of seeing the equipment as a collaborator rather than like person's dominance over yeah. the apparatus yeah completely completely you know i guess the thing i want to dispute is the innovation because circus always always sold itself on novelty and innovation and you know there's there are, there's a book on on theatrical patents and it's got some crazy ones in there for circus there's things like oh, i bet that's interesting Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't even flicked through it all properly, but I keep on kind of flicking through and finding another one. <laughs> um, but there's um, there's one which is a panorama in the background, which is a sort of cyclorama. So it, the panorama moves and then you've got a horse that is on rollers and canters along, but stays in the same place. <laughs> and that was done in the circus when the circus had a circus and a stage. So you've got a cantering horse moving background. So like a... On like a treadmill? <laughs> on a treadmill. Yeah, on a treadmill. And I think wow. it was performed at Assis. <laughs> but, you know, it's, that's nuts. Um, and then there's this other one which I really love, uh, which is you've got a tight wire, mm-hmm. you've got a bike. Hang, hanging off the bike, you've got two hexagons. The two hexagons are uh, sort of in a horizontal plane and joined by three bars. Off the three bars are three trapeze. Right. As the person cycles, the whole of the structure moves across the high wire and turns. Oh, wow. So that three people would be performing... On trapezes that are sort of turning in a rotating wheel motion. Yeah. Wow, okay. (laughs) And I haven't seen evidence... I mean, I've seen evidence of something similar, 
which I think it was rather than a hexagon, it was just um, it was a straight straight line with two trapeze on it. It was the Leamy's Ladies, who Leetzel at one point was part of. And I'm wondering if the cycling motion actually generated electricity to have the lights Uh, on the structure, which is just a bit nuts. Why isn't there more of that around now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think I would see people like Occam's Razor as the extension of that, really. But um, yes, yeah. But they're doing... But they are actually doing the more playfulness with the apparatus and you know, interesting things. But mm. strangely, that kind of whole structure made me think a little bit of The Mill, oh, yeah. um, their show from the 2000s. But, um, but yeah. We often imagine that progress is this sort of linear thing, mm. but that definitely isn't always the case. Is there anything that you feel has sort of moved backwards in circus? I think what you say about it not being linear is a really interesting thing because I actually think that what circus is quite good at doing is sometimes forgetting its past in order to reinvent it. So I kind of think that's a little bit what's happened with contemporary circus thing. Mm. But I think also that whole art versus popular thing is something which could possibly be one of those things, because I think that some popular uh, performers of the past have been incredible artists. Yeah, They've known how to manage their audiences and known how to draw out quite physical responses. And there is a real artistry in that. And, um, you know, somebody I'm thinking is somebody like Lydia Neetzel, who I, yeah. I've i done a lot of research into. She played with gender in a really interesting way um, in the 1920s and 1930s. She sort of brought agency, kind of a look, very much, a, she would pick people out in the audience for a focus and then would kind of be like, you know, you, I want you and I'm going to perform this for you. And it was just incredible. And she was very good at, at risk, at kind of playing with risk. And, and was she an aerialist? Yeah, she was an aerialist. Yeah, sorry, she was an aerialist. Um, she performed on Roman Rings, the first part of an act that was kind of quite quite controlled, uh, had moments of sort of dynamism in it. Um, she would do, holding onto the Roman Rings, she would do kind of almost a, a somersault between them instead of doing a dislock with her shoulders. So she'd somersault around her shoulders. Uh, she'd do handstands in it. She'd do uh, planches. Okay. But her finale was this, uh, was on a planche rope, which is a rope that you have a loop on the bottom of and you throw the body body over the shoulder in a series of revolutions. And I've seen somebody do it in Bianco uh, on straps. It was a male performer. Mm-hmm. But you kind of see it as a small sequence, but she would do between 60 and 100 of these in a show. Wow. <laughs> and but she, what they'd also do is they'd get, they do the old tricks, you know, the old tricks of getting somebody to, to start counting and beating the drum with each revolution. And that really got the audience involved and kind of, I think, performed risk in a really interesting way. Mm. If you look at videos of her, you also see how strong she was and how she was kind of playing with this doll-like appearance and this incredible musculature. It's interesting, that thing of, um, you know, being a very, like, feminine well dolled up looking uh, woman and then being really muscular do you, how do you think that was perceived at the time because even now there's I know a lot of circus performers have come up against problems of feeling like they look too muscular or being told they look too muscular do you think that audiences at the time were better with that I think audiences at the time I think they sort of read those two things together 
I think people did notice her body. Uh, phrases used about her body, like she was gnome-like, or they said that she looked like a wrestler, and or was it Notre Dame tackle was one of the great the great phrases. I think on the whole, people kind of could hold those two things in their head, particularly because a lot of the time she was at a distance from them. So what they were seeing was the graceful movement and the light, what, what they were reading as weightless movement, which, you know, that's a circus myth, isn't it? You know, if you do aerial, you know how much it hurts, and you know how much actually it takes to appear weightless. Yeah, the, the, full, the false elegance of aerial is probably <laughs> the biggest circus myth <laughs> of all. Yeah, no, I think probably it is, yeah. <laughs> so what are some lessons that you think we could learn from circus history? One of my things is that I think we need to treat some of the things that maybe contemporary circus is trying to push against, things like spectacularizing risk, maybe treat them more as a, a palette so that um, one way in which risk is very useful is that if you do aerial or you do um, acrobatics or you do um, you know, pretty much everything in circus, you know how much effort it takes to do that thing. But Audiences often don't know that unless they actually have that embodied understanding. So I think that we could do to remember that there are points where you can point out to an audience and say, you know, this thing that's coming, it's actually really hard. Yeah. You have to sort of let them in for them to actually appreciate what's going on. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's about, uh, I don't know, it doesn't mean about kind of glorifying that person's superhuman because I actually think that risk also gives if you play with risk it also makes the body appear more vulnerable and there's something very intimate in that yeah well risk sort of gives you the tension doesn't it and sort of without tension it's just your audience is just sitting back and bored completely (laughs) I mean you don't have to always be on the edge of your seat scared for someone's life but there's an element of that feels like it's always useful well there's a balance point between um risk and um and skill that is that's where the pleasure point is for me so yeah I mean, I, and I think that you know I would repeat myself a bit there but that whole thing about embracing where circus is popular and saying that that can be that can be a place in which there's a lot of creativity and not kind of having those those hard divisions about um, if you do this thing you're an artist if you do that thing you're not because that's rubbish to me yeah I agree with that definitely <laughs> So we've talked about we've talked about lots of really interesting stuff. Um, and if there's anyone listening who might be keen to learn a bit more about the history of circus, have you got any recommendations for any books or other resources that you think they should look out for? Yeah, I mean, I think um, for me, probably a good place to start if you don't know much about circus history at all is actually to look up some visual materials. So um, you know, there are quite a lot of Pinterest boards, people who who you know love circus as an aesthetic. Um, and you can see quite a lot of posters that um, that point to interesting acts. You know, there's the, the old Pathé um, newsreels. There's um, you can you can check out old videos of some act. Um, and the BFI player also has a free section uh, which has a few sort of circus film um, that's kind of got historical stuff in there. There's also books. You know, there's things like there's um, a book by um, Dominique Yando called The Circus, and it's uh, one of those Tashin kind of coffee table books and it's got lots of lovely colorful images in it again posters and they're kind of they're kind of those really good entry points 
the only thing is that when you kind of start working with popular books, like memoirs can also be quite good fun to read, but you have to take a lot of it with a pinch of salt. Um, so if it sounds a bit too good to, to be true, it's probably too good to be true because, you know, circus likes its myth. <laughs> um, so and there's there's some really good um, introductory books um, to uh, to kind of circus studies, uh, which include historical things like uh, Peter Tate and Katie Labour's Routledge Circus Studies Reader. And that's that is a bit academic in places. But it's, you know, if you're kind of wanting to dig in a bit more, that's a good, good place to, to think about doing it. Uh, there's a book that's due to come out this year, which I might have a chapter in, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is um, The Cambridge Companion to Circus, cool. um, which is edited by Gillian Arahi and Jim Davis. And they, that one, I mean, the only problem is when you start working with the academic text, they do begin to get a little bit pricey. It can be get, begin to be a bit of a pricey habit. But mm-hmm. uh, Marius Quint wrote a chapter on circus in the Cambridge Companion to Theatre History, which is quite a good introductory one as well. Awesome. Cool. That's good. Well, I'll put some, um, if you go on our website, we'll have links to some, I'll I'll look up some of these videos and stuff for people to have a look and do some links. And um, yeah, I was going to ask you, because I thought you were maybe in the process of writing a book and I was going to ask you what that's going to be about. But is is that the chapter you were talking about or is that you're also writing a book yourself? Cool. Yeah. So um, I'm writing a book which is was is mainly on artists like Lillian Leeks or another wonderful artist called Liz Italy is the Flying Trapeze Troupe, the Flying Cadonas. Um, and it's about female heiress in the 1920s and 1930s. Yes, it's it's kind of it's extending and developing some of the work that I did in, in my PhD. Um, and that should be coming out next year, hopefully. Ah, great. That's exciting. We'll share about that when that comes out too. Thank you. So, uh, last one. If you could be anyone from circus history, who would you be and why? Okay, so I would like to be Leona Dare. Uh, Leona Dare was an American uh, artist who was working in around the about the eighteen seventies. Why I'd kind of quite like to be her is for two reasons. One is that she performed underneath a hot air balloon, um, and she did Iron Jaw. Oh, is that where you hang from when you put something in your mouth and then that's what you hang from? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and which is, is nuts. I would never be able to do that in a million years. So it'd be quite cool to be able to do that. She also did an act, um, her music hall act also involved hanging upside down from a trapeze, having a, her kind of mouth piece in and hooking it into a man's belt and spinning him, which I just think is nuts as well. So basing from her mouth as well, <laughs> spinning. That's amazing. <laughs> there's. I mean, have you seen a leap for life done? So there's this wonderful, wonderful swinging trapeze artist called Winnie Colliono. She. I mean, she's really interesting anyway because she was um, mixed race, uh, indigenous Australian, probably a bit of West Indian, um, and white. She was performing, uh, I think, from about kind of 1914-ish through to late 40s or 50s. And she, um, she her swinging trapeze act was incredible. She did a heel catch um, on, the, on the swinging trapeze. Like dropped her heels? Yeah, a heel catch. <laughs> wow. Um, but then she somersaulted off 
onto to catch a rope. And that's called a leap for life is where you leap off and catch a rope. So it might be from a trapeze. It might be from a balcony or something. But, you know, you leap off and catch. Wow. <laughs> she's also she's also really um, there's video of her um, on um, on YouTube that's that's worth looking at. Cool. Well, is there anything which you would like to talk about, which we haven't talked about yet that we could fit in? Yeah, I mean, one thing that wanted to to talk about was kind of going back to what you know you're talking about at the beginning of the um of our conversation which is um some of the a little bit some of the um circus myth this idea that circus um has always been diverse and is always diverse Mm. and like it's this great you know welcoming place for everyone and i think recent events that you know particularly um, discussions that have been had on circus talk and um, via some YouTube videos yeah. have proved that that's not quite the case. No, and you know somebody like Pablo Fank in the nineteenth century, he did. He was a circus proprietor, and it's likely that he didn't experience prejudice in the same same ways. And that's great. But then there's also people like Winnie Colliono, who she had to pass as Spanish in order to be able to perform in um, in America, particularly because, or to, certainly to be popular there, because generally, uh, you know, black performers weren't able to appear because of segregation and Jim Crow laws in the South. Right. So it's all a bit more complicated. Yeah, circus definitely has its own dark history <laughs> with racism and colonialism and stuff, doesn't it? Completely, completely. And and but then it's also again it's it, it is places where diversity is seen. It's just it's a tension because you know in the eighteen seventies there was Stuart Dare who uh, was a one leg legged um, uh, aerialist who apparently innovated the form in some really really interesting ways. So it's this kind of thing of I think we need to and maybe this is another lesson for circus today is actually that we need to not take those myths at face value but maybe poke at them to see what is the good. And what is the troubling in practice today as well as in its history? Uh, I think that's a really good note to end on. <laughs> so thanks, thanks so much for speaking to us today. <laughs> no worries. It's been fun. Thank you. Hi, my name's Kate Holmes and you're listening to Not My Monkeys podcast. Did you know that we have a Patreon page? <gasps> A Patreon page? What even is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. At patreon.com slash notmymonkeyspodcast, you can sign up, you can choose a tier, and in exchange for your money, you'll get some exclusive rewards. Oh, wow. Sounds great. But what kind of rewards are there to have? You'll get extra content, clips from episodes, videos, you can join the mailing list, you can vote on topics, you can get exclusive merch, and you can even put an advert on the podcast. They all sound amazing rewards. But wait a minute, does this also help the podcast get made? That's the best part. Your support makes the podcast possible. Well, oh my gosh, I'll sign up straight away to help out this amazing podcast. Great, you can do that at patreon.com slash notmymonkeyspodcast for as little as £2 a month.
That was a very good interview, Ruby, as usual. Thank you. And I was mostly interested... You're very welcome. <laughs> and I was mostly interested in the talk you guys had about the traditional and the contemporary mm. and, you know, the issues that surround the misconceptions of both those words there. And so I decided I would put the question to our social media to find out what all our listeners had to say on the subject. And boy, did it blow up. <laughs> It blew up. Hot diggity daffodil. There was a lot of replies. <laughs> Everyone had a lot to say. They did. <laughs> but I tell you what, I shifted through it all. I enjoyed a lot of it and was outraged by so much. <laughs> I decided I'm going to condense it down. I'm not going to, you know, say this person said this or this person said that because that would seem a bit unfair. Instead, I'll just... I know, I'll tell you the general feel. Go on then, G give us a summary. Yeah, just a summary of what people felt like. Um, in general, when you think of the traditional, and these are mostly circus people that we have on our social media and that replied. So mm. this is sort of coming from an industry point of view of people who are in either class that they would put themselves in. So with a traditional, yeah. it's often seen as tricks and skills that has a bunch of weirdos in a big top and with a big ring it's all about spectacle and it caters to families and has acts that are split up by little things in between and usually has clowns trapeze and all the usual malarkey in it and then people when they had to describe contemporary often used words like theater and physicality and art and meaning they like to think that contemporary has theater involved and is something new by giving meaning to it they often come from like circus schools and are held in unusual venues mm. by which i mean not a traditional big top venue as people might imagine and you know they often try to put stories or have some kind of theme or plot running through them <laughs> and people did say some pretty uh pretty interesting things about both sides you know they thought contemporary was full of divas they thought that the traditional people are the ones that work <laughs> hard and are more diversified in their skills the ones that have like mm. big acts and can like stand their own um but you know a another big part of it people picked up on was costume well, you know that dictates whether you fall into the traditional or the contemporary it was very very interesting how heated this debate got and um on which side people thought they were in and which side they thought was i don't know maybe the truer circus it's very interesting yeah there was a lot of controversy there was. It, it was very interesting what what do you think on the subject ruby i want to hear what you think about this um i think it's it's really hard because a lot of things call themselves contemporary because they like even circus in history has always wanted to be the newest thing so mm -hmm. everything calls itself the contemporary circus it's always and, playing the new card isn't it it's always at the front yeah. of the new thing and really, if you look at sort of like art movements historically, it's quite hard to tell at the time how to differentiate things. I think it's only really when you're looking back that you can sort of make distinctions about sort of mm -hmm. different movements. Um, and as someone pointed out, they were talking about Archaos, which is a com French company that started in 1986, which mm -hmm. was sort of as a that's a contemporary circus company and sort of seen as one of the pioneers. And that was sort of a response to sort of some of the norms and traditions that were upheld in some traditional circuses. You know, they mm -hmm. had no animals. They were like juggling chainsaws. They were messing with gender roles. It was quite like anarchic. Um, mm. So in some ways there's that, but there are plenty of contemporary circuses that do still uphold a lot of those views. And 
you know, then there's things like Nouveau Cirque, which was a movement in the 70s and 80s in France as well. And that's about sort of hiding the tricks and sort of hiding circus within theatre. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's really hard because once you get into it, you know, there's sort of always been theatre in traditional and, you know, how how do you differentiate? There's definitely contemporary circuses that perform in tents. So, yeah, it's 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 hard. And, you know, ultimately everyone's well you and I have definitely seen some stuff that we haven't liked that's contemporary stuff that we haven't liked that's trad and stuff that's amazing on both sides as well so it's really hard to sort of make the distinction and I think yeah people feel passionately about it clearly but ultimately it's all circus so I don't really know yeah it's hard it's a hard question to try and answer I definitely don't have all of the answers Absolutely. And I think you're quite right in saying that there's more that connects us than divides us. There's yeah. far more that we're similar in and we're, they're so close to each other and overlap so much that they're hardly two separate things at all. They're constantly mm. an ebb and a flow. And I think that that, in a way, is is circus. It's, it's always like that. It's very interesting. It's all getting a bit <laughs> heavy. <laughs> it is a, it's a pretty like heavy conversation once you get into it and it's quite complex really it's foggy mm. but don't worry <laughs> i have the perfect pick me up <laughs> let's play a game <gasps> i call this game myth or truth <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Ooh. Ooh. welcome back it's time <laughs> to play the fun fun game of Ruth or myth? Dun, dun, dun. Ruby, I am going to tell you a circus fact. And you have to deduce if it is circus truth or circus myth. Okay. I am circus excited. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> this is going to be fun. It should hopefully be good. Also, yes. you guys can play along at home. So you can like write down your guesses and see what score you get at the end. Okay. Number one, fact number one, here we go. Are we ready for the game? Here we go. So <laughs> pink lemonade, which is famously associated with the circus, was actually created mm -hmm. by mistake when the lemonade stand ran out of water. They grabbed the next nearest thing, which was the water they'd use to just wash the red costumes. Now, is that a circus <laughs> fact or is that a circus Ooh. myth? <laughs> I... I mean, surely that is, I would hope, I mean, that would taste gross, surely, like so. sweaty costumes. So I'm going to say surely that like that's that's false. Hmm. Well, I'm afraid you don't get a point. That is actually <gasps> largely believed to be true. It's true. Yes, the horse Whoa. rider costumes had just been left to soak in the water. And circus worker Pete Conklin grabbed the tub, mm. mixed in the sugar and flavouring and presented it as new pink lemonade. The sales tripled and from <laughs> then on the circus deliberately sold pink coloured lemonade in order to attract people. Wow. Yes. Oh, there you go. Pretty gross. But um, <laughs> many historians believe that that is a confirmed truth fact. Mm. So no okay, point. No I'm ready for the next there, one. Ruby, you didn't get that one. You ready for the next one? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm so ready. Okay. The first human cannonball was a 14-year-old girl. Oh. 
You know, I've never actually seen a human cannonball and I would really, really like to actually see it done. Oh, it's, it's um, very exciting. I've only seen it once in a, in a ring circus uh, when they had quite a lot of space, but it is, yeah, it's cool. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that much given how, like in traditional circus, mm-hmm. I feel like children, because it's quite a family affair, children did perform from quite young. Yeah, but that's, that's quite an intense thing to do as a kid, but... And to be I kinda want credited it, as the first I want person it to, be to do true. it as well. I mean, mm. yeah. I mean, I want it to be true, so I'm going to say, yeah, it's true. You get a point. Oh, it is true. <gasps> <Yes>. <laughs> Zazel, or her real name, Rosa Richter, is in 1877 became the first human cannonball. Um, I think there's lots of other cool. people that have tried to take credit for being like the human cannonball, but. Trusted mm. historical sources give Rosa the actual honour of being the first person. And she wow. was 14 at the time of her first performance being fired out of a cannon across the stage. Into a safety net, of course. She wasn't just fired out of the cannon. <laughs> into the <laughs> she distance. Was caught in the net afterwards and then performed many, many times after that as well. That is very cool. There are some really badass women in circus history, like Kate was telling us about earlier. Mm, absolutely. And that person is one of them. She Zazel. is up there as one of the badass girls cool. of circus. <laughs> okay, so coming up to number three. Are you ready? Okay. It is bad luck to whistle in the circus ring because it makes the animals go berserk. <laughs> oh. Mm-hmm. Um, is that circus myth or circus truth? Well... There are definitely quite a lot of superstitions Mm -hmm. in the circus, Mm -hmm. in trad circus anyway, like wearing green costumes is meant to be bad luck Mm -hmm. or like you have to step into the ring with your right foot first and things. Mm -hmm. So I I wouldn't be surprised if like you're not allowed to whistle. Um, Yeah, that like that, that would make sense. So you're going to say... So I'm going to say true. Yeah. Well, it is a myth. Well, actually, okay, this was kind of a trick one. It's like a half true. (laughs) You shouldn't whistle Ah. in the ring or backstage anywhere because the riggers, who were often ex-sailors, they used whistling to communicate behind sets or from offstage to each other. So when Ah. they're pulling all the ropes and doing all the rigging and stuff, the wrong whistle could cause some real damage and... Yeah, it's just not a good idea to do. But it has nothing Uh, to do with making the animals go berserk. It's not technically bad Uh luck. It's just bad practice to do it. You know what? That is I'm going to give you a half point for that. I'm going to give you a half half point. point. Because that was unfair. Okay, great. I'll take that. I think, you know, you deserve the half point. (laughs) That was a trick one. (laughs) Okay. Okay, cool. Number four. You ready? Mm -hmm. I'm ready. Is this circus myth? or circus truth, the size of a juggling ring is so because the plastic manufacturer at the time happened to have a biscuit tin in his office that was circular and he needed to decide on a size he drew round the tin. Oh. Well, I feel like if you were designing a juggling prop, Mm -hmm. surely... You know, you'd get a juggler. A juggler would be the one who designed it and so it would be like something that would be like the right I don't know like fit in your hand right or maybe like the aerodynamics of it like it's going to be about how good it is to juggle rather than like the shape of a biscuit tin you think so it's going to be a complicated say, affair deciding the, the the props yeah or mm. just that you wouldn't decide it 
on a biscuit tin. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a circus myth, oh. Rosie. Well, it is true. Whoa. <gasps> really? Well, oh. For one company, it is. This isn't how every single prop maker designed their rings and decided it. But for one, that's how they did it. They looked around the office where they were coming up with the plans for manufacturing it with the plastic. And there was a, well, I, I don't know if it was a, cake or biscuit tin but let's just say there was a tin in the room <laughs> and so it was a circle so they used that it was roughly you know they looked at it they thought eh, it's a good size all right there you go then so that's how it happened maybe it was a, a jaffa cake tin Ooh, so it's debatable whether debate it was biscuit or cake that's hotter than contemporary <laughs> versus trad it's jaffa cake cake versus biscuit well it, it is a well cake, that's for another so. episode <laughs> give me another truth or myth okay <laughs> let, one last one one last one okay is this okay. a circus truth or a circus myth? Nelly the elephant is actually based off a Russian circus elephant, Nalexa, whose famous <laughs> trick was to paint the word hello using a little paintbrush she held in her trunk. But one night, the elephant painted the word goodbye and then proceeded to storm <laughs> out the circus into the streets of <laughs> Moscow. Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think... Uh... Nelly is, of course, a a circus legend mm-hmm. and a hero amongst elephants. And I could never question such such stature. So <laughs> there's no question. It's it's got to be a truth. You think that's a true story? <laughs> yeah. yes. for the purpose of this game yes i do Excellent. well i actually just made that all up the song nelly the yeah. elephant the popular children's song about good old nelly is not apparently based on any particular elephant or event no matter how frequently elephants do escape from circuses there isn't a special Nelly elephant out there. Uh, okay, that's disappointing. I Sorry. didn't do that well, though, did I? Well, what was Ruby, my you score? scored. <laughs> Let's take a look at your score. That was one and a half out of five. <laughs> I think that's not bad. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that was it was a lot of fun either way, and it's the taking part that counts. So um, if you were playing along at home, you should also let us know what score you, you got. Get in touch on social media. And if you have any more like truths or myths to share with us, we'd love that because I love hearing these facts. They're super interesting. Yes, please do get in touch with some cool ideas of things that you want to hear in the next episodes or any circus myths or superstitions that you know about in your circus. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Share it around if you did. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not My Monkeys podcast. We hope you've had fun listening. We've enjoyed recording it. It's been cool. We'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram at Not My Monkeys podcast. Or send us an email at notmymonkeyspodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our brand new website, which is notmymonkeyspodcast.com, where we'll post information and links about our guests and what we've talked about in each episode, along with the transcripts. If you're a fan of this podcast, it would be amazing if you'd consider supporting us on Patreon. That's where you can choose an amount to donate each month. Your support really does make this podcast possible, and you'll also get access to some exclusive content and rewards. (laughs) 